The British, the British dream. Below our expectations. We're about to be an all country. We're about to be a country. Wonderful to be here. The British dream podcast. Join us. Powerful people as we launch up despicable acts like these and the sickening and barbaric politics. What I hate about this Shut up is that it's so violent. When the next phase of this disaster comes, they will come for you. Hello and welcome to the British Dream, Vice's politics podcast. My name is Simon Childs, Home Affairs Editor at Vice.com. This year we're going to give this whole podcast thing a bit of a shake-up. We'll have more panels in Weatherspoons, but now we're also going to take a look at political speeches and have conversations with clever people we want to chat to. People we think have something important or just interesting to say about politics. The British Dream will be coming out every two weeks, so subscribe and send it to the group chat. Today on the pod, I'll be chatting to Richard Power Saeed. Richard is an author and commentator. He's recently published a book about some upstart Labour leader who stumbled upon a new way of doing politics that inspired a generation of young people. No, not Jeremy Corbyn. Richard's book is called 1997, The Future That Never Happened. He thinks that 97 was a pivotal year for UK politics. And he reckons the politics now is suffering from some kind of hangover from back then. And maybe he's got a point. An official fucking thing pop on their letterbox. Try to calm down. It's from the fucking Prime Minister. It's from the Prime Minister. And behave like an adult. What do you remember about 1997? <laughs> I was uh, a child. I was nine years old. Uh, and people often think, like, God, why the hell are you writing a book about something you don't even remember properly? But the whole point was that I mean, I, I do remember quite a lot, but I remember it in this really sort of superficial uh, way. And writing this book was about understanding these things properly. Mm-hmm. So I knew that Princess Diana had died at the end of that extraordinary summer. But was it really true that her that her death had been uh, had sparked this great modernization of the monarchy and that the monarchy had become kind of more demotic and uh, and, and, and more humane um, and I knew that Tony Blair had been this extraordinary figure of hope for so many people, and of course I knew that he had stopped being so, but to what extent had there been something? legitimate and understandable about how incredibly optimistic people were about him and about Gordon Brown. Because mm, um, one of my like early, probably my earliest political memory is being seven years old at school and voting in a like mock election. Oh, yeah. And I voted for the Labour Party. Yeah. And I was pleased because then my team won. Your team won. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think I, that's how most people think about politics most of the time. Yeah, yeah. But I just kind of remember this sense, well, looking back, it's like even at seven years old, I was kind of aware that there was this like vibe that this guy mm. was a great mm. guy, Tony Blair, he's going to like change things, obviously not in a deep way at all. And then, yeah, I think the story of 1997 and then what happened afterwards is kind of the story of it kind of sets the tone for a lot of politics now. We're still in the shadow of those people. I mean, that's why uh, Tony Blair, that's why people care about Tony Blair and what he says so much. I mean, everyone says, oh, we shouldn't talk anymore. We don't care what he says. But the fact that he that it elicits so much anger shows that people care very, very deeply. Mm. I don't think it's ridiculous to say that until very recently, at least, you couldn't you, you couldn't have named many uh, significant political figures who um, carried anything like the weight 
of Blair. He he understood himself. He understands himself as a, as a man of history, and he kind of represented himself in our culture in that way. And he therefore became, you know, I'd say definitely as dominant a figure as Margaret Thatcher, and in some ways had just as much impact as she had. That's a, that's a very controversial point. Yeah. People say, oh, he just continued the things that she did by continuing something, by reinforcing it, mm. you make it so much more powerful, so much more strong than it would otherwise have been. You're dressed like an Afghan clown fucking at five in the morning, you know, off your fucking head on acid. So, uh, 97 was this moment of extraordinary hope. Um, Britain was going to become this cosmopolitan, free, fair society, a young country. And New Labour and Tony Blair were not the only element of that by any means, but they were the kind of key bit right in the middle. They were the fulcrum around which the Spice Girls and their new mainstreamed, commercialised feminism or the Stephen Lawrence campaign and its, um, you know, the hope that it was going to finally bring like radical anti-racist ideas into the mainstream and that it was going to profoundly change this kind of old post-imperial society um, you know Britpop was this uh, you know incredibly exciting cultural movement that was all about getting ordinary people's voices out there kind of to number one and it had been something cool and something like fun for young people for the most of the 90s now finally it was completely pervasive mm. um, and and all of this was happening in in, in 97 at, and and yeah new labor were in the middle of it mm. um, but they weren't the only element of it but whether it was new labor or indeed you know those kind of exciting things that were happening around them there was something reactionary in all of that mm. um, and sometimes you can say oh that was the fault of the kind of the key people involved the famous people and sometimes you can say no it was reactionary because of the way it was treated in our culture but either way it didn't have the progressive egalitarian impact that it was supposed to have it didn't make our country freer and fairer and very understandably people are extraordinarily resentful that what was promised didn't occur and then there are other people who are resentful that even the most kind of marginal changes you know uh, to the extent that the anti-racist movement was able to make a bit of a dent in racism in this country there are some white people who were very resentful of that yeah. and we're seeing that kind of resentment increase as well as the resentment that we don't have a fairer society and I think that's what's coming to a head now he wants us to go around for a fucking Fucking, he's inviting us to his house for a, for a drink. So yeah, if we if we could turn to the example of, for instance, you just mentioned Britpop, and um, the example you used in your book, and, and we had an extract about it on Vice, was uh, this vision of uh, Noel Gallagher turning up to Number Ten Downing Street mm -hmm. in a brown Rolls Royce, mm -hmm. um, having been on a dole queue. Was it two years previously or something? A bit more than that, but yeah, sure. Um, and yeah, it's this moment where like working class guy from Manchester is like entering the halls of power mm, with this mm. like cool, like new image. And yeah, with it, the idea that now literally called Britannia, Britain was now cool and interesting and, and different. And how extraordinary that he wasn't just going to the halls of power. He was going into the drawing room of 
was it Robert Walpole had uh, kind right. of had like he had his tea there or whatever you know and the idea that this guy who was uh, you know famous coke user and was always getting into trouble on the front page of the tabloids the idea that he with his his edge and his um, his rebelliousness that he was part of this cultural elite who would be entering into into someone like Downing Street was actually quite extraordinary. I think now if somebody equivalent turned up at Downing Street, we wouldn't be quite so surprised, but it, it felt like a very major moment to people. And I think the reason it worked so well, the reason that Tony Blair was so keen for this to happen, because New Labour courted various Britpop figures at different times, but the reason that Blair was so keen for this to happen was that Britpop kind of was like it was like a substitute for what he didn't do politically so he had uh, got rid of so many of the key components of what people understood to be a left-wing political platform Um, you know he was for deregulating markets he was um, for for privatising different parts of the public sector and what someone like Noel Gallagher, who was so sort of self-consciously working class and projected that so strongly as part of his image, and it was how he was defined when he was on the front pages, and it was a very particular kind of rebellious white working class identity that he, to some extent, had imposed upon him. Um, that was like a substitute, a uh, very superficial substitute for, ha- for having a left-wing platform for Blair. So he could be friends with this guy and it made him seem authentic. It made him seem not just another Tory. Um, and that was incredibly key. Mm. And quite cynical, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. But also maybe there was something quite kind of naive about Blair. Um, there's a, a, a nice story about how he um, he was at the Q Magazine Awards and um, he'd given this slightly embarrassing speech where he talked about how much he loved the Smiths. Um, and um, I think he was just being kind of led down the stairs at you know the Park Lane Hotel or the Dorchester or wherever it was uh, with the with the ceremony still going on but it was being, he was kind of being led down the stairs by the editor or the founder of Q Magazine who was an old friend of his of course and they'd been yeah. in a band together and uh, just at that moment Noel Gallagher was coming out of the toilets um, and uh, he'd um, been using the toilets to uh, huff up some powders uh, and um, he was really quite animated um, and uh, and he bumps into Tony Blair on, on, on the steps and he just like hugs him and he says Tony Blair oh my god I can't believe it's you and uh, Tony Blair is astonished and really excited by the idea that this cool young guy is interested in him mm. um, and he turns to the SJF Q and he goes it's Noel Gallagher <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, the point is that you know, actually Blair was kind of excited about this stuff mm. um, you know lots of us would like to be friends with celebrities were you invited to number 10 down street? nope and I wouldn't have gone anyway. It's not my place to... So why would I go there? What about... I've got nothing in common with any of them. New Labour were creating a new image of of, of Britishness, um, which was still actually an extremely white 
image of Britishness. It was still an image of this country which was um, nostalgic for a time it didn't really exist. I think what happened with Britpop, as well as it being in some ways this very uh, rebellious movement that really insisted upon British or at least English working class voices being heard, there was also something quite reactionary about how white it was, definitely about how masculine and male it was, um, and about how it had this incredibly specific idea of a very particular kind of working class that it thought should be represented. Um, this, uh, you know, in some ways, like slightly fictionalized idea of an industrial working class community, um, um, really, really idealized, um, and yeah, I mean, there were lots of people at the time, um, lots of black people at the time, who said Britpop's really white. I think um, people might remember this uh, famous Vanity Fair cover, um, Vanity Fair UK edition, Americans didn't care about it, with Liam Gallagher and Patsy Kenzer on their Union Jack uh, bed, um, and actually Touch magazine, which is a UK uh, magazine kind of for black culture and hip hop um, did another cover kind of an equivalent cover with uh, it was Shola Hammer and someone else was on the cover oh I can't remember um, point was you know there were people of colour pointing out at this time Britpop's really white and that was largely ignored but I think it was a key component of how we've got to a place where we can somehow, for a lot of people, they can imagine that you can be, um, you can be white and you can be anti-migrant um, and you can be looking back to a fictionalised golden age and yet you still think you're rebellious. You think you're fighting against the establishment when in fact you're just making the most powerful people in our society more powerful. And I think that is a kind of key component of the shift to the cultural right um, that Britain's seen over the last several years. Um, it really depends upon that idea of um, of xenophobia being anti-establishment. Mm, yeah. Um, and part of why that was... Another part of why that was possible was because often in very superficial and rhetorical ways, uh, New Labour and later even David Cameron um, would talk about anti-racism or, or about anti-racist ideas um, we talk about um, multiculturalist ideas uh, and that allowed some people, some uh, white people to think that they were kind of losing out, that they were being uh, marginalised when in fact, you know, there was just a very, very slight rebalancing of an incredibly unfair culture taking mm. place. Yeah. And yeah, of course, you see everywhere now with um, you know, any, any big Brexiteer thinks they're some massive anti-establishment almost like pirate or something yeah absolutely I mean I think we should always be careful when it kind of when we extend this to Brexit to say that um, you know I think a lot of this stuff does feed into Brexit but also there are like there are other reasons why people are pro-Brexit and it's um, yeah. it, like we can't just totally blame the Gallagher's <laughs> no we definitely can't and also we can't say that Brexit is entirely a about race or migration because it's not um, sure. but for a lot of people that is a very very significant part of it don't know anything about politics don't want to 
looks like a shit house anyway. So why go there? Another part of the book that I found really fascinating was um, the, about Stephen Lawrence, mm -hmm. um, him being murdered, and then the subsequent inquiry. Mm -hmm. And you get this weird moment, which as you, as you talk about the kind of the kind of half memory of this time when mm -hmm. us and a lot of people listening to this were very young, of like, wait, there was this weird moment where the Daily Mail was batting for a murdered black guy and his family against the police and then you're like wait is the daily mail really good <laughs> <laughs> but but as you explain it's not quite like that no and the key point is they weren't batting for his for his campaign against the police because what the daily mail under paul dacre did was to completely twist around the story of uh, of Stephen Lawrence's murder and the subsequent failed uh, police investigation. Um, whereas uh, Doreen Lawrence, Stephen's mother and his family and the campaign around her very strongly said the police have failed in many, many ways. They failed in ways that they wouldn't have failed in this investigation. Um, they've been lazy and incompetent and rude and aggressive and they wouldn't have done that if he was white. And there's lots of evidence to show that they didn't do that, that when white people get murdered. It didn't seem like there was going to be that inquiry. It seemed like um, this was going to be completely... Uh, the police's failures were going to be completely ignored. Mm. Uh, and the Daily Mail, and you can kind of say to their credit, um, or at least they did do a good thing, which was <laughs> they publicly said... This is February 1997. They publicly accused the five white men, none of whom had been found guilty, of being murderers. And in this huge front page, the five white men's faces, massive headline, murderers. And it was an incredible act of journalism. Um, but the point was that they were completely ignoring and indeed silencing what was perhaps the main point of Doreen Lawrence and the Stephen Lawrence campaign, which was that it was police failures that had contributed to these murderers getting away with it. Mm -hmm. And the mail instead turned it into a story of a white working class community being terrified by a gang of marijuana smoking unemployed youths and therefore not telling the police anything. Complete rubbish. Dozens and dozens of neighbours and people in that community, white people, had gone to the police and tried to give them information. It hadn't been very useful information. Some of it had just been hearsay and rumours, but the point is they'd gone. They'd put themselves on the line. And mm. it was, you know, anti-racist critics and, 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 and campaigners have for so many decades been saying, you know what the elite do? They try to divide white working class from black working class. They try to pit those two groups together. And that's exactly what you saw happening there in the pages of the Daily Mail. They were blaming racism on white working class people when in fact they themselves, the Daily Mail, were, you know, this... Um, <laughs> produced by middle-class journalists, owned by a tax-evading, tax-avoiding aristocrat. Um, they, the Daily Mail was the one that was, um, that was stopping racism from being dealt with properly in our society uh, uh, and blaming it on completely the wrong people. And what they seemed to be actually concerned about was seemingly these uh, five were kind of mocking... British justice and uh, they were actually the, the Daily Mail was actually kind of making a defense of the establishment and like the rule of law it, as opposed to a sort of progressive point about 
uh, race and policing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they they said they made it uh, about white liberal lawyers having failed to do their job and white and and white liberal um, judges having failed to do their job um, and a white working class community that had failed to, to to help the police. And the point is, it became a story about white people mm-hmm. it's a completely crazy situation where a black boy had been murdered and a mostly black campaign group had been uh, had been spending years and years trying to get people to pay attention to the police's failures and now suddenly the whole British media establishment was talking about white journalists talking about white lawyers and judges and white murderers and white communities not doing anything apparently um, mm. so a story that should have been about black people's experiences Experiences became a story about white people's experiences. But as horrible as it is to say that, perhaps that was the only way that it was ever going to become a mainstream story. And because it did become a mainstream story, that was why Doreen Lawrence then had the leverage to go to Jack Straw and say, I want a judicial inquiry into the police investigation. She was able to force New Labour to make that decision and that became the McPherson inquiry and what people may remember particularly clearly from the McPherson inquiry was that as well as exposing with kind of ruthless detail the failures of the police investigation, it said this investigation failed because the Metropolitan Police are institutionally racist. Mm. And it was an extraordinary moment um, in this country's history, you know, for for that to be officially judged to be the case. And, and for the Home Secretary, Jack Straw, to say that in the House of Commons, it, it, it felt important. It felt like a sea change. It felt like, oh, my God, now, finally, we're going to deal with racism in this society. And... It, People had a lot of hope. And part of you goes, right, yeah, I'd have gone just to have a look around like what Noel did. And part of you goes, right, I won't go because it's not my covered seat. And then part of you goes, well, fuck that, I don't want to go out tonight. I'm going to stay in. I feel like there's a kind of overarching, kind of concluding thing that I want to discuss, which is that your book is a story of a Labour, ostensibly progressive government using progressive ideas and in various ways falling short stripping them of their meaning, using these radical ideas rhetorically and then not really achieving what those radical movements would like to achieve with those ideas. I, f- I feel like we're kind of in a similar sort of epoch-defining year or two now uh, as 1997. I feel like, you know, 2017, 2018 will be looked back on. Especially 2017, so much sort of hope for change with Jeremy Corbyn's mm. very successful election campaign, certainly successful relative to what we thought. Um, and I wonder if you think there are any contrasts or similarities with Corbyn and the sort of the radicalism there and how we looked at Tony Blair at the time. You know, at the time, everyone thought, yes, Tony Blair, great, he's going to change everything. Well, there were obvious differences. I mean, we should, we should always remember the kind of like the obvious differences and, you know, maybe the most striking one is the approach to kind of what they believed the economy could be or should be. Um, And, you know, Tony Blair is saying market globalisation is an unstoppable force and we have got to accept it. Absolutely, we must open ourselves up to this. And and that means 
um, absolutely accepting deregulation. It means absolute uh, of markets. Uh, it means accepting uh, the privatization of significant chunks of 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 the uh, of the state. Um, and it also meant, and this is a little bit more kind of complex, but it also meant not necessarily accepting austerity economics, but it meant never really making the argument for an enlarged uh, public sector. It meant doing it by stealth. And it meant never really making the argument for taxes. It meant doing it by stealth. Um, Which is now sort of, you've now got the Carillion scandal going on, and that seems to be another of Blair's legacies. Well, I think now what we're seeing is whether whether it's um, you know, Grenfell has become to- the appalling tragedy at Grenfell, which you know we should always remember is really just you know it is primarily about people losing their lives and families being ripped apart. But in terms of how it has become kind of politically totemic, it has become a, uh, a symbol of the failures of deregulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know when we look at uh, appallingly sluggish wage growth for most people um, in Britain. That's our totem of the failures of austerity economics. Um, and and now with Carillion, uh, I think what we've got is our totem of the failures of privatisation. And those, uh, deregulation, austerity and privatisation, that's the three pillars of neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. They've all come crashing down. Mm-hmm. So that's the big difference between Blair and and uh, and Corbyn is that Blair was broadly accepting of those and, and Corbyn wasn't. But you're right, he's right, that there are kinds of similarities. I think one is that there's a similar kind of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that there's perhaps rather more kind of concrete, substantive things for people to be hopeful about when it's, uh, w- when it's Corbyn they're thinking about now. But... Um, so a lot of the time, you know, hope is a kind of um, insubstantial thing. It's a feeling in the air. Um, I mean, Corbyn has just so much more that he has to battle against, though, because because he's not supportive of neoliberal economics. He's got uh, most of the media establishment and um, uh, most of the political establishment and the whole of the financial establishment against him. That's part of why people find him so exciting. It's part of why they find him so convincing. How the hell has he managed to do it? It's, it's, a, it's a very compelling narrative for good reasons. I mean, another thing which is quite similar uh, between them in, in a way is, um, is the kind of like huge arguments happening within the Labour Party and the kind of battles for control of the party machinery that are taking mm-hmm. place. All of this stuff about should MPs go up for automatic uh, selection, reselection and... Um, uh, you know who has control of the national executive committee these are very much the kinds of battles that were happening in the 1980s but still well well into the 1990s um and into the early years of new labor you could you could obviously kind of see corbynism and, and his success as a kind of uh, reaction to blairism in the broad sense um and I think it's like a really interesting sort of moment that you've, I mean, the book came out last year, but it's kind of the right time for it to come out because if you had written this in the year 2012, the Labour Party is still relatively Blairite. I don't mean that in a kind of pejorative, like if you're not left wing, you're a dickhead Blairite way. I mean, in the sense of like 
the kind of general modus operandi of his politics still held sway in the Labour Party and you still had throughout the Cameron years Cameron was kind of an heir to Blair mm, mm. and then now Corbyn's come and like casting himself and also in the way he does his politics is like making this real distinction but it's kind of like Blairism is kind of over now Blairism is over in the Labour Party it's also over in the Tory party mm-hmm. um, whereas you know D- David Cameron and George Osborne didn't want to be thought of um, at least within their party as being the heirs to Blair they were embarrassed about having I think that was a quote from one of them wasn't it and, and they were very embarrassed about it um, but uh, but that was what they were, and they knew that that was why they were successful. Uh, and it's absolutely key to how uh, Theresa May represents herself that she's not like that. But for, but for those people on the Tory right, rejecting Blairism um, doesn't mean rejecting uh, what it means for Corbyn. Yeah. You know, for them it means rejecting multiculturalism. For them it means rejecting this um, image of Britain as a progressive, tolerant place, and it means replacing it with a a kind of you know what is often a really really regressive, very white. Um, very very upper middle class idea of Englishness um, you know trying to say that the British Empire might have been something other than an astonishingly violent uh, institution that exploited and murdered huge numbers of people and stole from them that kind of rejection of Blairism basically makes you think well better new Labour than that and I think that's, a, that's a something that we can always <laughs> bear in mind is that the collapse of the uh, of of that particular kind of liberalism um, has opened up a space for very, very vicious right-wing people to turn up as well. Yeah. Tony Blair wasn't all bad. (laughs) (laughs) Tony Blair, complex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks to Richard Power Saeed. And 1997 and the Future That Never Happened is out now on Zed Books. Check out Rich's writing and what he's up to online. He's at Power Saeed on Twitter. The British Dream was produced by Sam Bonham at Rethink Audio. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll be ripping apart one of Corbyn's key policy speeches. What is Labour's foreign policy anyway? It's a thing, or at least we're going to make it a thing. Until then, keep the dream alive. <laughs>